0: Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It is November twenty seventh, two thousand eighteen. I'm Charlie Sykes. I'm joined by Michael Warren and David Byler of the Weekly Standard. It feels like it should be the you know, it should be Thanksgiving now, right? Didn't they just I November twenty seventh. should be the day weird after Thanksgiving. Early or
1: Thanksgivings something. are um uh, just kind of like weird because then it's like everybody's in the Christmas spirit now, but it's still November. Like this, this is – yeah. something's
0: wrong about it. I am not in the Christmas spirit yet. I, I, it usually takes me about till like December 15th. <laughs> I'm lying. It's actually <laughs> December 20th or so. Okay, so we're going to be hearing an awful lot about the 1858 election, aren't we? Let's see if David gets that really obscure reference. Uh, 1858. The 1858 yeah, what, election.
1: I, I know what that is. That's what, uh, that's Lincoln what, Douglas. Lincoln loses the Senate race in uh, 1858. Uh,
0: that's you going. Okay. Michael, you are not just another pretty face. Okay? <laughs> course, so, Be- Beto O'Rourke, the Beto mania, apparently is not derailed by the fact that he loses a Senate race uh, down in Texas. Now, he did much better than anybody expected, but now he's suggesting he might run again. And, of course, people will say, wow, like, now how do you run for president after losing a Senate race, which brings us to – 1858. Abraham Lincoln loses to uh, Douglas in in Illinois. Two years later, is elected president of the United States. But can I say it, or does anybody else want to say it? Beto O'Rourke is not exactly Abraham Lincoln. I mean,
1: it d- does it even need to be said? I, I, it's like yes. people always point to this example of Abraham Lincoln without recognizing that it was abraham lincoln arguably the greatest president uh, of all time and and if you're going to make the case that that is in beto o'rourke's future um i mean i have a i have a democratic senate candidate in texas that uh, you should donate to um
0: well how yeah. the, the 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 beto phenomenon you know can, continues of course he did come within three points so i guess the question the obvious question is can can Mania translate nationally? Now, I, I'm just two two parts of the electorate. Yeah, obviously, you know, after the the midterms, the Democratic base, which was highly highly motivated this time around, so you want to get them excited about a candidate. That's number one, and number two would be the uh, former Republicans in the suburbs who uh, abandoned the party in droves. And Michael Warren, you wrote a fantastic piece. About the collapse of the Republican Party in Orange County, which historically cannot be overstated in its significance. Um, so does does beto would does Debato appeal to those parts of the electorate? Would it translate from Texas politics to a two thousand and twenty general electorate in 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 those two particular categories? I, I think
1: it's not just that uh, that direction you're having to translate. You're also having to translate from a Senate race. Uh, in one state uh, in a midterm election to um, a much bigger uh, uh, in a much different dynamic which is a presidential race which is really about um, so much more than the particulars of um, Ted Cruz and uh, the particular uh, animosity that a number of Republicans have in the state going back to like um, you know going back to the primary that Ted Cruz won back in 2012 you know uh, uh, you're talking about uh, the sort of dynamics of a binary choice which is of course what we saw in 2016 you saw a lot of Republicans hold their nose uh, for uh, uh, Donald Trump to vote for Donald Trump because they didn't want Hillary Clinton. I think you can't discount that those dynamics come in in a presidential election year. And the problem for Beto getting that kind of suburban Republican vote is um, he's pretty darn liberal. He's pretty uh, outside the mainstream. And um, there's no evidence that Republicans uh, of that stripe or Republican voters, people who generally vote Republican, are ready to make that big of a leap. Uh, they could, but there's no evidence that they're ready See, to do th- th- that th- yet.
0: Th- this is the key question that I wanted to ask you about, which is if you have – again, let's focus on Orange County as a – this is a symbol for the you – know, as, as a proxy for the rest of you know suburban America, which may or may not be accurate. But – are those voters who voted for Democrats this year, you know, are they lost to the Republican Party permanently? If that's one question. And and number two, these are not voters who are gonna go into the voting booth and vote for Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, are they?
1: No, I don't I I think they are not lost, and I don't think they're they're automatic Bernie Sanders voters. Um everything can change of course. And, uh, and, and we just may see a continuing trend where, uh, let's say a, uh, Elizabeth Warren and a moderate, uh, Steve Bullock from Montana, for instance, on the ticket, um, in a moderation of Elizabeth Warren's stances on certain things, uh, makes that ticket a little more palatable and makes it look a little more like a Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton style. I mean, I'm not, uh, anything mm. can happen is what I'm saying, but um, you know, I, uh, when I wrote this Orange County piece, I talked to a lot of people who were uh, Republicans who were very interested in what's happening in Orange County, Have been watching it for years. And the point they're, they, they made to me over and over again was, look, just because they voted for, and, and narrowly in some cases, uh, for Democratic House candidates does not mean um, they're in love with Nancy Pelosi now. They're right. in love with the liberal agenda. They're not. Um, what they are frustrated with is the change in the Republican party. Um, so I, I think if there is go, if these suburban voters are really going to shift over to the Democrats, which they very well could, and this is, you know, in the way that rural white voters have shifted over the Republicans, um, it It will take a long time in the process of them going over to the Democratic Party over issues like um uh, a much more uh, sort of economic nationalist outlook uh, from the Republicans and um the sort of issue of Donald Trump. I think that th- there will be a change if that happens, there will be a change in the Democratic Party as well that which means that it won't simply be. Um, a, a party of the mm. left of Bernie Sanders that by, by virtue of it being made up of, of new different kinds of voters, uh, uh, suburbanites, it will necessarily have to change uh, the, the way it is on policy um, or those voters are going to swing right back to the Republicans.
0: Yeah, David, uh, you want to weigh in on all of this? Uh, the, there are a lot of Democrats who were testing the the thesis that they don't need those swing voters, and you know, in, in in Florida and Georgia, it was like, it was let's turn out the progressive base, let's get the progressive base jazzed up, and clearly they would have some reason to think that uh, their strategy was uh, somewhat successful. However, it failed in Georgia, it failed in Florida. And uh, the story of the night appears to be the story that Michael's talking about uh, this, uh, the shift in the suburban voters, which could be conditional. There's there's certainly no guarantee that those folks stay on the Democratic side.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think Mike made a ton of great points. Just a couple things to kind of back up what he's saying. I think that a lot of people see the population projections out to 2050 or whatever it is when Um, America is going to be a majority racial minority or what have you and see, you know, these Democratic or or these uh, demographic uh, projections that look good for the Democrats. And they just kind of mentally assume that 2050 is now. And I think what you've seen in a lot of the elections of 2018 that went well for Republicans was. That that's just not really the case. That turning out the progressive base is oftentimes insufficient, and you do have to do some of that uh, persuasion work. I thought Mike's point about uh, the Democratic Party having to sort of change ideologically as it takes on new voters was really insightful. Yeah, very um, I think that I think that's something that people haven't fully priced in, and have sort of thought, oh yeah, if we you know just run Elizabeth Warren or whoever over and over again. Uh, We can just count on and bank on suburbanites. A a lot of these people voted for Mitt Romney. That wasn't that long ago. It feels that long ago because, you know, covering politics and there's an event new every uh, every day, there's a new event and so on and so forth. But that's not that long ago. That's, you know, the presidential cycle before the last one. These voters are still up for grabs depending on who Democrats nominate in 2020 and what both parties really choose to do uh, now and beyond.
0: Okay, well, let's talk about uh, today's election. Um, by the time, well, now actually, by the time people listen to this, we won't know the results uh, in Mississippi. Um, where um, the conventional wisdom is, is that, uh, David, you correct me on this, the conventional wisdom, of course, is that this is uh, much tighter than one would have normally expected. But, It would be a huge, shocking upset if Mike Espy, the Democrat, were to be elected in deep red Mississippi. So give me your sense, having crunched the numbers, watched the, the, the basics. What do you expect? What is reasonable to expect tonight from Mississippi?
2: Yeah, so I think the conventional wisdom on this race is a little bit to the left of the reality and where I generally see it. Um, Mississippi, just as a state, is a it's a particular type of red state. Uh, just demographically, it's very racially polarized. In most major elections, uh, when you look at the numbers, almost all of the African American voters vote Democratic. Almost all of the white voters vote Republican, and that ends up shaking out to Republican wins pretty reliably. Because even in a really good uh, turnout environment for the Democrats, like 2012, when Barack Obama was on the ballot. Um, black voters made up about 38% of the, uh, Mississippi electorate Republic or white voters made up about 60% of the electorate. And, you know, it, it, when you're talking about Mississippi politics, sometimes it feels kind of weird to just talk about it in these, you know, demographic only terms, but that's just how the vote tends to shake out there. I think that Hyde Smith has lost some amount of support. Uh, there's one poll from, RRH showing her with a 10 point lead over Mike Espy, which, you know, that's that's really significant. It's one poll, but that's really significant. That's less than what Republicans typically get. But, yeah, it'd be it'd be a pretty big
0: upset if uh, Espy were to win. It would would be huge. And I I do think this I I tend to agree with you. I think that there's a little bit of wishful thinking going on here. Wish casting. Uh, The people are thinking, well, um, they flipped Alabama. You had the Doug Jones win, and Cindy Hyde Smith has run a, a pretty craptacular campaign, but she's she's uh, it, it's not the same. So how how is Alabama and how are, how's, how's this race in Mississippi different from the one in Alabama?
2: Yeah, so I would say there's two sort of big differences. One you pointed out, which is that Hyde Smith is not Roy Moore. She has made a number of stumbles and a number of really, you know, rough comments over the last couple of weeks. But but being
0: dumb and insensitive is not the same as being a pedophile.
2: Yeah, exactly. It's, it's it's, there. Yeah. Roy Moore is (laughs) in his own category of terrible. Yeah. Um, But the second (laughs) thing is that Mississippi isn't like Alabama exactly demographically. So the same racial polarization sort of shows up in the voting patterns in both states. But there isn't really a Birmingham equivalent in the state of Mississippi. The population is just generally a lot more rural. Um, there's, you know, there are some uh, sort of outlying and suburban ish areas of Memphis in part of Mississippi, but there's no sort of full city located there that's the same way. So there's less opportunity to have kind of the um, suburbanite sort of rebellion that you had uh, in the 2017 election in Alabama, in Mississippi, it's not impossible. It's a state with a different makeup. I mean, the, the percentage, Mm -hmm. uh, Mississippi is unless you, if you don't count DC of, of the 50 States, Mississippi, I think has the highest percentage of African-American residents of any state. So, you know, if, if you're a democratic candidate running in Mississippi, you want to, um, focus on turnout, but I think that you're, your task is just larger because it seems like there are fewer persuadables there than mm-hmm. there might be in Alabama based on just the makeup of the state.
0: OK, so I'm, I'm wanted to uh, bounce this off you, uh, Michael Warren, um, that the, the, the how this plays nationally. You now, I, I tend to agree with David that uh, it's, it's likely that Cindy Hydesmith will be reelected and will go to the United States. Uh, we'll stay in the United States Senate. But but. You know, you have all of this controversy about the state's history of racism and slavery and all of this uh, the, the, this imagery. And people around the country are paying attention to all of this. I mean, obviously, it's not just playing in Mississippi. and it it does well, just it strikes me and to tell me whether you think this this is a theory. This is the kind of atmospherics that is incredibly damaging long term to Republican uh, Republicans in the suburbs that we were talking about before. So let's go back to the suburbs of, uh, you know, Philadelphia or the suburbs, you know, of, uh, you know, in, in Orange County that they're watching what the Republican party, w- who the face of the Republican party is at least for this five minutes in our news cycle. And it's gotta be leaving a mark.
1: Yes, but, but, <laughs> uh, but um, I, I also, I, I think a couple things. One, um, uh, Trump is more important than than any other candidate. I think you know whether we're talking about sort of um, the, Todd A- argue with that. the Todd, no. Aikens the Todd Akins of the past or whatever. I mean those those were damaging um, nationally, but um, I, I I don't think uh, it, it meant that Republicans were um uh were, we're being chased out of the suburbs when when Todd Akin won the nomination in Missouri for instance. Um, and I would sort of liken Cindy Hyde Smith to Todd Akin in terms of um, the level uh at which she's a bad candidate and sort of does damage to the party. Um, but Donald Trump is 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 much more important um in terms of No, there's
0: no there's no question. Well, let's think about Todd
1: Akin. You 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 sure go ahead. No, 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 no. the other real quickly and I'll go back to what you're saying is I also think it's I mean um, and I can say this as a Georgia native um, uh, and, a, and a native of the south Mississippi is is a special place and um, in, in that way I think Mississippi um, um, is is viewed by the rest of the country um, as sort of this weird uh, uh kind of sad vestige of a of a really terrible racial past and you could see that in Cindy Smith's own background in a way that I think is um, can be compartmentalized uh, in a way it's that baked
0: it's... baked in. People just figure it's Mississippi. Yes. I, I, yeah. I, I, okay. I, and,
1: and maybe that's fair, maybe that's unfair, but I think that's baked in as well.
0: Okay, I, um, I was thinking back when you were coming about uh, Todd Akin. And there, no, there's no question about it. You're right that obviously Donald Trump is 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 the alpha and the omega in terms of political impact. But you wonder whether incidents like you know, Todd Akin's, uh, you know, failed Senate candidate, whether that's contributed to the long sort of drip, drip, drip erosion of female support for the Republican Party. That this is all incremental. The other question is and you know and I look at of course everything through the you know uh, you know perspective of Wisconsin politics and one of the reasons why Donald Trump won Wisconsin was because African American voters did not turn out for him in the numbers they turned out for Barack Obama so the question is what will it take to motivate um African American voters in swing states around the country and you wonder you know stories like this drip 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 being used to motivate voters around the country but but obviously you are you're, you're correct about all of that um, let, let me uh, I, I want to uh, talk about the the breaking news today including The Guardian a bombshell. Um, and I want to underline if true, if it is true uh, that Paul Manafort had visited uh, Julian Assange in the Ecuadorian uh, embassy, uh, the significance of that. And of course, this comes the day after the special prosecutor says that uh, Manafort has broken his plea deal. I want to get to that in a moment. But today's Daily Standard podcast is brought to you appropriately enough again by calm. Look, a lot of words have been used to describe the current state of the country, and calm is not one of them. And personally. I don't think I've taken a deep breath in two years, and that's that's why we're excited to partner with Calm, the number one app for sleep, meditation, and relaxation. It was named Apple's 2017 App of the Year. Calm gives you the tools you need to live a happier, healthier, and more mindful life. Just five minutes of calm can change your whole day. If you head to calm.com standard, you will get 25% off of a calm premium subscription, which includes hundreds of hours of premium programming, including guided meditations on anxiety, stress, focus, relationships, including a new meditation each day called the daily calm. There are even sleep stories, like bedtime stories for grown-ups. And they're very sophisticated. They're very, very well done. Uh, so for a limited time, the Daily Standard listeners can get 25% off of a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash standard. And that includes unlimited access to all of Calm's amazing content. Get started today at calm.com slash standard. That's calm.com slash standard. Okay, Michael Warren, let's talk about the Guardian bombshell report. As we are speaking, I'm not sure that other news outlets uh, have confirmed this report uh, that Paul Manafort had met uh, on several occasions uh, before he was associated with Donald Trump, or I I think you tweeted out even before it was the Trump candidacy was a gleam in anyone's eye, (laughs) uh, met with Julian Assange. If this story is true, how big a deal is it? I think it in some ways it's a
1: very big deal uh, practically speaking because I think uh, if, if it is confirmed, we don't know if it uh, we don't know exactly the timeline here from the Guardian story, which seems to be based mostly on um, uh, sources within the Ecuadorian uh, intelligence community um, it, the time period um, was was Paul Manafort working for the Trump campaign. Uh, at the time that he met in the what the the Guardian reports is the spring of 2016 with Julian Assange at the Ecuadorian embassy in London, um, and uh, and so that I think would make sort of a practically speaking a huge difference. If it was before, um, a little less uh, of a big deal. If uh, if it was, of course, after it's much more of a big deal because then there is a really a direct connection. But to, to take it, zoom out a little bit here. Um, it's, it, it tells us something that we already knew but adds more detail to it, which is that Paul Manafort, at the time that he was hired by the Trump campaign, uh, in order to help Trump uh, navigate the end of the primary process and get to the convention and win at the convention uh, – Paul Manafort was, uh, doing some really bad things. was a bad actor, um, uh, who was engaged in, um, in some really dirty, shady political, uh, business, um, meeting with a guy like Julian Assange, um, even before he was, even before Trump was, uh, really going to run for president, um, I think speaks to the kind of person that Donald Trump apparently reportedly right. acknowledged, which is that he's a crook. Um, that I think is something that, um, We we know, but cannot be underscored enough, and we should remember that as we sort of remember what was going on in the Trump campaign at the time, was that this this was a guy who was willing to do some really shady stuff before the Trump campaign. Why do we think that he was uh, unwilling to do that, to wall that part of his life off? After he took over the Trump campaign,
0: I don't know. Yeah, I mean, he had get reasons to uh, perhaps uh, have a relationship with Assange that had nothing to do with Donald Trump. He was uh, on the payroll of of the Ukrainian puppet of of the Russians and was looking for information to discredit uh, the r- Ukrainian. Uh, opposition, but, but clearly, uh, his ties then to, uh, Russian intelligence and to this sort of thing become a little bit more manifest. I should mention that, that WikiLeaks, uh, WikiLeaks of course is denying this, ripping the Guardian report, betting a million dollars that there was no Manafort Assange meeting. So make of that what you, uh, what you will. Now this comes the day after, uh, the special prosecutor says that, uh, that Paul Manafort was was still lying to them, which is really extraordinary because clearly, you know, some people have described this as, as almost legal suicide by on, on Manafort's part that, uh, you know, having cut a deal with a special prosecutor um, to have lied to the special prosecutor or to have uh, gone back on his agreement with the special prosecutor really. Exposes him to uh, a decade or more in in prison, and then this morning you have the president uh, who tweeting some of his, and again maybe this is getting old, but uh, some of his harshest attacks on Bob Mueller, yeah, also said saying you know people are characterizing him as a hero, but he's the opposite of a hero. I mean, they mean look, Bob Mueller w- was a hero. He's he's, he's a decorated hero, uh, you know, from from Vietnam. So should we be connecting the dots or just sitting back and going okay this is this is back <laughs>
1: I think at this point with the information we have, uh, the, 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 best we can do is say, uh, well, this is something to be watching. I mean, we, so remember the timeline here. So Paul Manafort is convicted on something like, I think 10 counts is what he was ended up convicted on in the Virginia court. And, and that's why he's in, in jail currently. Um, and then he made this plea deal on the, uh, on the case that was before, um, uh, the, the court in DC. Uh, and so, um, this is that it's that deal that he's uh, the special counsel says is he's going back on or he lied to uh, about. Um, so why would he do this if it is as as you pointed out, Charlie, uh, uh, sort of legal uh, suicide to do this? Does he believe that he's uh, he can get a pardon from the president? Um, the president mm-hmm. certainly has talked about this openly, that he has the ability to pardon uh, uh, people including himself. Um, the fact that Trump is sort of talking this up, I mean, these are the kind of things that we can't draw any uh, real conclusions about until we see everything that we, that, that, that uh, the special counsel knows. Um, but it's certainly, uh, it's certainly raising my uh, antenna, you know, and saying something, oh, yeah. something's going on here, uh, something uh, uh, Paul Manafort believes uh, could save him here. Um, the, we should just keep watching.
0: Yeah, let me just just read what what Aaron Blake uh, posted a little while ago. The episode appears to be a setback for Mueller's efforts to glean information from a key player in the investigation, but it may double as an opportunity for disclosure, even a chance for Mueller to enter key events into the public record. That's especially the case if he's worried about what the new acting attorney general, Matthew Whitaker, might do to the investigation and if the whole thing is indeed winding down, the episode could give us one of the best senses to date of exactly what Mueller is probing and how much trouble President Trump and his campaign might be in. That is if Mueller wants to spill. So <laughs> it's uh, uh, this is one of those moments where there are so many different aspects a hanging fire on all this. And we just don't know. But you do get a sense that uh, the things are coming to a head. Okay, I want to switch back to uh, to David here. uh, We continue to get these vote totals trickling in. You know, I remember we were talking right before the midterm. We were sort of joking with one another that in California it was not election day. It was election month. But here we are. It is November 27th. And we still are getting are still counting votes in, in California. And just yesterday, Mia Love in Utah uh, conceded that she had uh, th- that she had been uh, de- defeated. But since Election Day, it seems that that the that I use the term conventional wisdom now too many times, and, you know, uh, but um, that that we're getting a sense that this wave was much deeper than we had the feeling on election night. And I'm looking at Dave Wasserman's tweets that uh, the And I know this is somewhat misleading, but the popular vote margin for the Democrats uh, more than nine million. The percentage increase uh, greater, uh, the percentage uh, win by the Democrats uh, uh, greater than their percentage win back in the obvious wave of 2006. So give me your sense of of how people how your perspective about this election has changed in the 20 days since the election. I mean,
2: my perspective hasn't changed much honestly i think the conventional wisdom was uh a little bit too wishy-washy and not quite correct on you know about uh the house side of things on election night and i think you know people are kind of self-correcting now that they're you know seeing the the new popular vote numbers and things like that but you know when the new york times shut off the uh famous needle i think it was on wednesday they projected something like a seven-point House popular vote win for Democrats. Now, if I remember right, 229 Democratic House seats. The actual results aren't that far off those things. I I think people are just kind of, the the conventional wisdom is kind of self-revising to catch up a little bit with the reality. Now, if you define wave based on governing power instead of popular opinion, I think you can have a whole different discussion, but you know, this was this was a rough year for the Republicans. And I think we knew that uh, pretty much as soon as we hit uh, kind of the middle couple of time zones in the U.S. It wasn't clear that it would be, you know, when Indiana and Kentucky results were rolling in. But as kind of the night went on, it it all sort of took shape to look like the results we see now.
0: Yeah. And the and, and I don't expect that we're going to have uh, any 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 change in the way we run elections between now and 2020, unfortunately. And of course, you look at the 2020 election, you know, the presidential election. It won't be decided by these late votes from California. We pretty much know how California is going to go, no matter who the right. Democratic majority is. You know, my my nightmare continues to be the the you know Broward County or something right. out of Florida yeah. and how incredibly. How incredibly ugly that would be. All right, Michael Warren, is there anything that you are watching that you're obsessed about over the next uh, 48 hours that we should be paying attention to?
1: Um... I don't think anything in the that's in the offing. I just want to circle back to the Mia Love um,
0: yeah, uh, concession
1: um, uh, because it, it, it uh, in some ways, it confirms what um, I've been sort of hitting hitting at um, since the uh, the midterms happened, which is the Republican uh, uh, recession from the suburbs, and and, uh, uh, and 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 I think Mia Love. Uh, was in particular uh, a part of this because of the way in which Donald Trump, the day after election day, when he gave his uh, his press uh, availability, um, went after her among others as as people who were insufficiently pro-Trump, um, and uh, you know, uh, Mia Love essentially um, gritted her teeth for the last two years, uh, and all she has to show for it is losing a, a seat and being mocked by the president of the United States. Um, but I do think love is also um a, a, a kind of a special case as well um it was interesting that mitt romney who's on the ballot really didn't do much uh to boost her hmm. um uh, i don't know what that means i've 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 heard certain things that um there is uh, a, a close connection between the romney family and the mcadams family uh ben mcadams is the democrat who defeated her so i don't know if that's a part of it i don't know if there there might be some uh, division between uh Uh, Her political operation and the Romney's, I don't know, but it was notable that. Um, that he really didn't do much to try to pull her across, um, which I think is um, is interesting. She's uh, this is hmm. a district, uh, the fourth district of Utah that's centered on Salt Lake City. Um, it is for Utah uh, Democratic. It was held by Jim Matheson, uh, a Blue Dog Democrat, uh, and she actually lost in 2012 in her uh, bid to unseat him. Um, she won in 2014 after Matheson kind of got by the skin of his, by the skin of his teeth in 12 and decided he didn't want to um, uh, do it again in 14. So she won this seat uh, two times, 14 and 16. Um, but it swung back to the Democrats. So um, she's so we should keep this in mind as well, which is that um, some of these seats um, are sort of uh, uh, Trump. Uh, many of these seats are Trump influenced in the suburbs, but um, the candidates also matter. And I don't know what's going on with Mia Love. Uh, why she's not? Um, uh, why she struggles in this seat? But um, uh, but there there. Let's give some credit
0: uh, or some blame uh, to the candidates themselves mm. as well. That 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 is interesting. Okay, we have uh, just a few minutes left. Uh, the I'm I'm really struck by the way the closing of the GM plants is is playing. And I was watching uh, some of the Democratic uh, uh, Cong- with the Democratic congressman from Lordstown, uh, Tim Ryan, was on uh, last night, uh, just hammering uh, President Trump. And it really does seem to be a challenge to the central MAGA promise. Uh, which was uh, that, uh, that the president, the Trump administration, would be protecting blue-collar workers. And the way the tariffs are playing into all of this, that uh, the, the tariffs, the whole point of the tariffs, right, is to protect manufacturing jobs, to bring manufacturing jobs here, to keep them from, from going uh, abroad. And yet you have this unintended consequence, of the tariffs adding huge costs to American manufacturing, and now you have these, uh, the, you know, these these closings, fifteen thousand jobs. Now I know we've asked this question over and over and over again, and the answer, you know, is always the same. But is this one of those issues that could shake? the blue-collar support that uh, that Donald Trump has won in places like Michigan and Ohio. I mean, the Republicans had a really good night in Ohio, and there's no indication that that support has been shaken, mainly because, well, it's just sort of that cultural tribalism. But uh, talk to me a, a little bit, uh, David, about uh, th- this particular, the way it plays in the industrial Midwest, because if Democrats make this into a case where you've been conned, the president has broken his promise, you're not keeping the jobs, that would have tremendous impact in the Electoral College, wouldn't
2: it? Yeah, it would, it would have a really big impact. And I think that what we saw in 2018 was that a lot of these sort of blue-collar voters, especially rural ones, really are shakeable and really are movable and are persuadable uh, by issues exactly like this one. I mean, you're, you're correct to point out that there was a lot of Republican resilience in Ohio, especially in the governor's race, though uh, Sharon Brown did get reelected. But in a lot of these other states, things, you know, looked worse. Uh, in uh, Michigan, there was a six-point loss for John James, which, you know, indicates that Michigan is a, swing, is a swingy state. But it also indicates that in sort of a Democratic national environment or under the right conditions, which, you know, could include bad news for the auto industry that a lot of these voters that Trump won over could just as easily, you know, go back. The, the last people you add to your coalition are the shakiest members. They're the least reliable ones. They're the most likely to bolt. And if you expand it just a little bit outwards and you look at Wisconsin and Minnesota and Pennsylvania, I mean, Wisconsin and Minnesota, at least in the House and Senate elections, voted exactly how you'd expect a swing state and a light blue state to vote given the national environment. You had a fall off for Republicans among, you know, some of these uh, blue collar white voters. And Pennsylvania, which, again, not going to be so affected by the auto industry, but is kind of lumped into this group, I think, in an appropriate way, is a state where Republicans saw kind of their their worst margin in these Midwest, mid-Atlantic uh, swing states. If you look at uh, Bob Casey Jr. and Tom Wolf's margins, so, yeah, I, I Trump really owns this whole thing now. He is the president. And so if he has a policy that has a specific effect and it's detrimental to people, then, you know, if people are still thinking about this and this is a big if, if but, people are yeah, still thinking yeah. about this by 2020, it matters.
0: Well, well, that's right. And you don't know whether people will be thinking about it by next week. But uh, circling back to Michael's uh, point about Orange County, though, that uh, there is, uh, you know, the. The realignment is temporary on both sides, that uh, that you do have uh, suburban voters who voted for Democrats. They're not necessarily permanent voters for the Democrats. They shouldn't take them for granted. And uh, some of these blue collar folks who voted for uh, Donald Trump, uh, they may be somewhat conditional as well. Uh, If, in fact, we have these these job losses in the in the upper Midwest, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it very much uh, today. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again.